We've been going through the book of Matthew, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and today we're going to talk about one of the more notable parts of Scripture uh, in Matthew 7. So if you want to open your Bibles, you can get there and eventually I'll, I'll get to it. We'll read through some of it, Matthew 7. Uh, but again, Jesus is talking to his disciples uh, and, and he, he's kind of giving some information about what does it mean to follow me? And he's really contrasting that, you know, in a large degree with the religious leaders and the Pharisees of the day, kind of saying like, you know, this is what you've seen, but but this is really what it means to, to follow me. And so he's kind of laying out this general idea of what actually a disciple or a follower of Jesus looks like. Uh, and We've been working through this uh, Sermon on the Mount. And just a kind of quick general overview again. We started in chapter 5. He starts with the Beatitudes, some general characteristics. Uh, he then went into, you know, what does it mean to be a, a witness and influence, the, the light and the salt of the world. Uh, he talked about this idea of, of righteousness. Uh, and then we moved to chapter 6 and kind of got into, you know, what is the, the motivation for why we do what we do? Uh, and so we, he covered a bunch of different topics. And then now we've come to chapter 7. And so we're going to work through verses 1 through 12. And this deals a lot with this idea of relationships, not only with us and God, but also with us and, and others. And we're going to work through this. And then over the next couple of weeks, we'll kind of transition into the last part of the Sermon on the Mount, which really kind of gets into, you know, a culminating wrap up of, of everything that he's been talking about, you know, and, and the direction of where does all of this end uh, for people who are going to, to follow Christ. Now, some of you know, I have five kids and, and they're all wonderful kids. And, you know, there are times uh, as a parent where I like am dad of the year, you know, like I should get a trophy and a, a ribbon and, you know, I should be all over. There are times that that happens. But more often than not, what I realize is I'm like worst dad of the year. Uh, and a lot of times that happens because what I do is I watch other people's kids and then I go, yeah, they need some real parenting. And then I look at myself and go, I'm amazing. And then God quickly humbles me in the process uh, and says, no, remember how you were looking at that parent? Yeah. And just a couple examples of what I mean. Uh, you know, how many of you as a, as a parent, like you're somewhere, you're hanging out and something breaks and you're like, uh-oh. You know, my first thought now is not like, I hope people are okay. My first thought is, Lord, please don't let it be my kid. Um, <laughs> And the one time we were, we were at a homeschool event, and there were like, I mean, there must have been like 100 kids running around, and we heard a window smash, and sure enough, it was one of my kids. And I was like, oh, you know, and you do the customary, like, we'll pay for it, you know, and you're like, oh, gosh. Uh, another time, we had some friends in our old neighborhood, uh, and, and, you know, we would be hanging out, we'd have our, and this one kid would have food all over their face. And I get it, like, kids are dirty and kids are messy, but this was like, a kid like constantly just food everywhere and the kind of thing where you're like would somebody please just get that kid a napkin like I, I don't understand like it's crusting over at this point point. and so as you're thinking this here comes one of my kids hey dad and you're like oh my gosh and there it is like food like you know like they were like at a circus or something like that um, and, and recently we had somebody uh, teach our kids how to uh, make a flamethrower using sunscreen. You know, they had a sunscreen and a lighter, you know, and all the kids are like, oh, isn't that awesome? And you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that. Yeah, well, 
if you guys don't know, a lot of times I'll say, please don't talk to Mr. Ray, because it's almost like I have to undo Ray teaches everything my kids. Um, so so I, I'm thinking, like, I can't believe these kids, right, had taught my kids how to make a flamethrower. Well, sure enough, my kids are up at the lake with some other uh, friends from the homeschool program. And what do my kids decide to do? Show their friends how to make a flamethrower. And then here I, my wife is telling me, she's listening literally to the same conversation these parents are having of, like, well, that's not what we wanted to teach our kids. And I'm like, that feels like the same conversation we just had a little bit ago, right? So that's what I'm talking about is, like, there's these moments where God just humbles me. And he goes, you know, you think you're an awesome dad. You think you're an amazing parent. Well, trust me, you are far from that in that reality. And so I start with that because it's very easy to fall into that trap, is it not? It's very easy to look at the life of someone else stand next to them and then evaluate our life compared to theirs and think we are doing a pretty good job uh, in what's going on. And that's kind of what God is getting at when we look at Matthew chapter 7 here. Um, you know, again, as I said, it's, it's, it's a very easy thing uh, to do this. And Matthew 7 is a very misused passage. It's probably one of the more misused passages that I would say in Scripture uh, that people utilize. Uh, you know, it, it's almost kind of this thing like we use this to get ourselves out of a situation because we really don't want to feel bad. So let's start reading here through Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. And it says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at speck, the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the blank in your own eye? And how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own? You hypocrites! First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So let me stop there. So as I said, a lot of times, again, people will use this passage because they don't want their sins exposed. Right? We live in a culture where the norm is everything goes. Who are you to judge me? Who are you to say that I'm right and wrong? I should be able to do and be and, and say and think whatever it is that I feel. And, and understand, that's not what God is saying here. God is not saying people have the freedom to do whatever they want and we should never judge people, okay? Because that would be ridiculous if we can never hold people accountable to their words uh, or their actions. Uh, what God is trying to help us understand is there is an appropriate and a godly way to bring about the sense of judgment uh, upon you know, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But in order to do so, we have to make sure that our attitude is an appropriate and godly one and not the more often ungodly version that we tend to exude out to others. So what, what is he doing here? So really one through five is, is almost kind of like a warning here, right? So verses one and two is kind of like, I'm just going to caution you guys, right? Don't judge. How you be judged is going to be held the same accountable to you, right? So how you judge people, we're going to hold you by that same measure, right? So God is just kind of throwing out this cautionary tale. I'm just warning you guys, if, if you want to go about judging a certain way, we're going to hold you to that same standard. And then we move into three and four. And now he gets a little bit more aggressive. And again, he's got this ridiculous analogy where he says, look, you guys are so quick to, to, to look at the, the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, and you've got this massive plank hanging out of your own eye, right? How can you judge somebody on this little tiny microscopic speck when, again, you have this obvious glaring problem 
existing in your own life. So he's getting a little bit more aggressive with this. And then when we get to verse five, he just flat out calls it out. And he goes, you guys are hypocrites. That's what you are in this whole process. You are hypocrites. And that word hypocrite, is a, it's a Greek word that comes uh, from the term actor. They actually would use this and they would reference people who would pretend to be something else. Or literally kind of the translation is like, you, you're acting from behind a mask. And so what he's saying is, is you know, you're, you're, you're causing judgment upon people in a way that you're pretending as if this never happens to you, right? So again, right, I gave all those examples of where here I am, like these are awful parents, and then literally God's like, mm, no, you're just the same, Adam, because your kids are doing the same thing, right? And that's what he means by that idea of hypocrite. Uh, and so he lays it on pretty thick there. And, and what I think what God is trying to do here is he's trying to show us what our hearts are look like in this process. And he's kind of layering that for us. And I think a lot of times when we judge, there are three things that tend to stand out. One, we judge ignorantly. We judge one-sided and we judge very, very unfairly. And so let me just walk through each of those. So when I say we judge ignorantly, a lot of times we evaluate people based upon our own preferences or, 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 or circumstances, or just, you know, what it is that we like. And it's not a godly way to do it. So I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, you know, we take the punctual people versus the tardy people. Okay, I'm a punctual person. I'm the kind of person uh, who likes to show up on time. Actually, one time in college, I went to a Halloween party, and I got a prize for being the first one at the party because the party started at 7, and guess what? 7 o'clock, I was there. Right? So punctual people are always waiting for the tardy people and being like, where, where are you? Let's go. Let's go. And all the tardy people are like, what's your problem? Like, why are you in such a rush? Like, we don't need to get there exactly on time. Right? And so we look at each other and we judge each other and say the other one's wrong. Uh, or sometimes, you know, the early birds versus the night owls. Right? I'm an early bird. I like to get up early. I cannot stay at 10, 10.30. My eyes automatically glaze over. Uh, but you know, the early bird is up and ready to go, and it's looking at the person laying in bed and like, dude, you're wasting your day away. We've got all these things to do. You know, and the night owl's like, man, why are you going to bed? Like, the night's young. Let's have fun. Let's enjoy. But again, right, we're, we're at odds with each other. Uh, or the introvert versus the extrovert, right? Introverts, those people are so loud and so obnoxious. Right? And the extrovert is like, why is that person just sitting there? They're like, they're boring and they're not fun. Okay? And this is what we do. We evaluate people based on our own preferences and personalities. And, and what we have to understand is we are completely ignorant of God's word because nowhere in the Bible right, are those things an act of sin. But we evaluate them and say that, yes, those are acts of sin, and those people should get up to bed, they should get out of bed early, and they should stop being so loud, right? And they should be on time. All those other people are sins, and they need to get their acts together, okay? And, and, and so, again, that, that's what happens, right? We're ignorant of God's word. So what we need to do, again, is evaluate based on what God's word actually says. The second thing is we often judge one-sided. You know, a lot of times somebody does something wrong, and, and we are very, very quick to point it out, right? Not only are we quick to point it out, but then we're very quick to go tell people that somebody sinned and somebody messed up. And then we try to get all the people together, right? And then we go, okay, now we, okay, everybody's hurt. Now we need judgment. These, oh, these people need to be held accountable for what they have done. And there we are with our pitchforks and our torches, right? Banging down the castle gates of Frankenstein, right? And demanding that these people be held accountable. 
And then what happens is we get called to the carpet for something and there we are hiding and we're pleading for mercy and we're like, please, please don't say anything. It's going to be so embarrassing when people find out about this. Oh, I'll be ruined. Please don't. Right. And so that's what we do. Right. When somebody does something wrong, we want everything on them. But when we do something wrong, we expect to be treated the opposite. And it's very one sided. And then we treat people very, very unfairly in our judgment. Right. Because, again, when somebody has done something wrong, we're like throw the kitchen sink at them, throw the book, lock them up, throw away the key. Don't ever let them out. Take everything away from them. We will punish them to the fullest extent. And then when we have done wrong, we're like, here, please just slap my wrist and let me go home. Right. See, that's how often we will judge people. And that's what God's trying to get us to understand. That, that is an ungodly way of judging. Okay? We cannot approach people from that type of perspective. And so again, what does he say? He says, you hypocrites. You think you are better than what you actually are. You know, you expect to escape judgment. Well, guess what? We all deserve to be judged. In the eyes of God, we all deserve death. And so it is completely wrong and unfair of you and ungodly of you to point something out in somebody else's life when you yourself have not wrestled and dealt with these issues yourself. Right? So if that's the case, though, we have to understand the second part there of, of verse five. And so what does God say there in verse five in that second part? He says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye. OK, get yourself set then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So God's intention was never for us to say that we can't help our brothers and sisters in Christ. But what God wants us to do is be aware of our own sins, our own hearts, and our own motivations, because when we are able to do that, then we can properly help people understand how they have veered off course, right? We see that in Galatians 6.1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. So again, God is not excusing us from doing this. He just wants us to be in an appropriate place so that way when we do it, it's done in a way that honors God and honors the individual. So what does godly judgment look like then? Well, I think one of the first things we need to, again, realize is, you know, again, we judge out of our own self-righteousness, right? I am better than you, and I'm going to hold you accountable to my own standard, right? And in 1 Timothy 1, 5 and 16, I think Paul lays out something very, very uh, important about this idea. Uh, and so he says here, he says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who believe in him and receive eternal life. Again, I, this is one of my favorite passages because I love this idea. Because again, here we are looking at Paul, the man who writes right, a ton of the New Testament, somebody who, who has faithfully gone out, spreads the word of God, who is, is willing to be beaten and imprisoned and shipwrecked and die on numerous occasions. And what does he say? I am worse than all of you. I am, the, again, if I'm going to stand next to you, I'm going to point my finger at myself first and say, I deserve death before you do for all the sins that I have committed. 
And I think what we need to understand is when we go into this, we need to have this very humble attitude, just the way that Paul did. We have to realize that this person that we're trying to hold accountable, we are not better than that person. Sure, they may have sinned and I may have not done that sin, but that doesn't mean that I'm a sinless individual. Only Christ is that. And so in this passage, too, you know, he lays these other ideas out there, right? He, you know, he talks about the patience that God had and this grace and mercy that he has in this terms of judgment. And we see throughout the scriptures that God is kind and he's loving and he's gentle and he's forgiving. He says, when you're going to approach somebody, this is the attitude that you need to have. Right? Again, I'm not going in with, I'm going to give this person everything that they absolutely deserve. My goal is to destroy this person's life. No, 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 no. Because again, if God went in that, none of us would be sitting here today. God would have wiped humanity off the face of the earth a hundred times over again. But what? God was what? He was patient with us, and he was gracious, and he was mercy, and he was loving. I mean, isn't that the gospel in itself? You don't deserve life, but I love you and I'm willing to forgive you for all the things that you have done, are doing and will do so you can spend eternity with me. And, we, and, and God goes, there's judgment at the cross. And we're like, what? But see, that's what godly judgment looks like. And, and the reason why that's godly judgment is we have to understand what is our purpose in this? What am I trying to accomplish when I address a brother and sister in Christ in this process, again, is, is my goal to destroy them? Then I'm completely in the wrong spot. No, here's what we need to understand. Two things. Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. In 2 Corinthians, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, and the new is here, and all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he was committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, right? I represent Christ as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, and God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So, when we look at this passage, what is the purpose of godly judgment? It's all about freedom and reconciliation. The reason why I'm coming to you and pointing out your sins in your life is because I want you to be free of that sin. I want you to be free of the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. I want that to no longer enslave you to the misery that exists. And I want you to say, listen, Christ died for that sin so you wouldn't have to experience it anymore. That's why I'm telling you what you're doing is wrong and it needs to stop. And again, it's all based off of God's word, right? My judgment, my highlighting of your sin is only valid if it's actually biblically a sin. And the purpose then, too, is to reconcile you with the love of the Heavenly Father. 
Listen, you have veered off the course. You have walked down the road of destruction. And God doesn't want that for you. That's why he died on the cross. And he wants you to get back on the right path that is a life of joy and blessing and eternal bliss. I'm trying to save you just the way that Christ died on the cross to save you for your sins. That's why I'm pointing this out, right? I'm not there to condemn you. I'm there to pray for your soul that you find the love of the Savior again. That's the way we need to approach judgment. But yeah, that's a hard thing, right? It's not easy. As I said, we are selfish individuals. We are self-righteous individuals because that's what the world says. You can achieve, you can succeed, you can do it, you can make everything right, you can make all the problems go away, and it's all about what I can do and me and me and me and me. And that is the furthest thing from what the gospel teaches us. So, we keep going here because we got to get through verse 12, so we got to move along a little bit here. So, so now we come to verse 6. Right? God has established ungodly judgment versus this is what godly judgment looks like. Here's how you are to act. Here's why you're doing it to free, help free people in Christ and reconcile people back to Christ. And then he's got this odd statement. He says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and tear you to pieces. This seems like a really odd, unusual verse here. When you're like, wait a minute, God, you're just talking about judgment and planks in the eye and helping people in their sins. And now all of a sudden you're like, don't give to dogs what's sacred? I'm, I'm confused. How does how this all go together? Well, what we need to first understand, uh, this fits, okay? It wasn't like God made a mistake and just like accidentally forgot to include some of the scripture here, okay? Um, what we need to understand is the term dogs and pigs in the Bible it's a really negative connotation. They're, they're viewed as scavengers. They're viewed as filthy animals. Uh, you know, the pig was like the most unholy of all of the animals to the Jew. It rolled around in its own filth. It was an unclean animal. And oftentimes, when that term dog or pig is used, it's usually referenced in terms of the enemies of God. Okay? And, and so, as we kind of put that into context, so is what we're saying here is, God, are you telling me to not give the gospel to the dogs and the pigs? Are you telling me to not share your love and mercy and grace with people? Because it seems to contradict a lot of your other verses, right? John 3, 16, God loved the world, 1 Timothy 2, 4. He desires all men to be saved. In 2 Peter 3, 15, he doesn't want anyone to perish. So I'm confused, God. I don't think God's telling us that, that God is not saying don't share right, the, the scripture with the unbeliever. But again, he's, he's calling us to also be wise in this process, right? Because as I said, these, are, these were, in their minds, these were some dangerous animals that, you know, they easily, you try to feed one of these, it easily could have bit you. And so I think what he's saying is be wise in this sense, right? And be like if I went down in the center city and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to start witnessing to people. I'm going to share the gospel with people. And I go down in the center city, and I go find the dark alley, 
And I go, look at those guys dealing drugs down there. In the middle of the night, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. There's like six of them. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to walk down in the middle of that group, and I'm going to say, you guys are a bunch of sinners for selling drugs right now. Right? I don't think that's what God is telling us to do. Right? Or, or it's like I go into a bar with a bunch of drunk people, and then I start calling everyone alcoholics. Right? What is likely to happen if I do that? Hey, guys, you're a bunch of sinners. Right? Right? That's most likely what's going to happen to me, okay? And I think God is telling us, listen, you need to be wise about this, all right? Because here's what we need to also understand. You know, that in the scriptures, we also have these passages. When God sends out his disciples, he says, listen, shake the dust off your feet. And, and we have John 3.16, which we love. There's a reason why everybody knows John 3.16, but we often fail the second part of that, right? John 3.18, whoever doesn't believe stands condemned. See, what we need to understand is we can present the gospel to people, but guess what? Not everybody wants the gospel. And that's a hard truth to hear. And I think that's what God wants us to understand is you just got to be wise about this. Not everybody's going to offer. Not everybody's going to take what I'm offering them. I mean, we look at the cross. Two criminals hung next to him and one accepted Jesus and the other one basically criticized him. And so what we need to also understand in this process is not only is it about freedom and recon reconciliation, but it's also our job to give unconditional love, but we don't give unconditional approval. I can love you, but I don't have to agree with everything that you do. And the reason why I don't agree is because it's not biblical. And I think that's where God also wants us to be wise in this process. Okay? And as I said, this is not easy. We are sinful individuals. Our flesh demands what is right. We love people. I mean, think about, you know, think about your own family members, maybe your own kids, who you see things do wrong and you're just pleading desperately. Why don't you get it right? Why don't you just, why don't you just follow God? Right? We can't beat people into submission of the gospel. It just doesn't work that way. God could have done that if he wanted to, but he didn't. Instead, he said, I'm just going to give my life for you, and it's there if you want it. And I pray desperately, and the Lord desperately wants you to have that. So, so how do we handle this? Well, then we come to the second part here, verses 7 through 12. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive, and he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, and know how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. How do I approach these circumstances when I know my heart most likely is never in an appropriate spot? God says, well, that's why I'm here. That, that's why I'm here. That's why you come to me and you ask me to say, Adam, search, search my heart, God. Reveal to me where I have wronged and where I have sinned. Lord, give me the appropriate motivation for my brother and sister in Christ I know I'm not any better than them, and please remind me of that, Lord. But Lord, help me to approach this person with gentleness and love and respect, so that way we may win them back for you. 
And when we offer those kinds of prayers that are in accordance to God's will and not our own, God answers them. God is like, oh, I will give you the world in that case. Right? I don't pray those kind of prayers and then God's like, well, you know what? You really asked for food, but I'm going to give you a poisonous snake instead. Right? That's contradictory to everything we understand about who the characteristic of God is. And I think when, when, when this place is here in this passage, he's not just talking about judgment, but if we, we go back to all of the other things that he talked about, right? We talked about how do we eliminate worry? How do we deal with the, the, the issue of greed and, and sexual temptation? How am I, a sinner, supposed to be the light and the salt of the world? How am I supposed to live out the characteristics of the Beatitudes? And Christ says, you can't. But if you come to me, I will help you. I will give you the spirit to do all of this. And I think that's why we start to see this here at the end of the passage. Because, see, when we come to God in prayer, again, it recognizes our humility and our dependence upon him. And what are we calling out? We're saying, God, I can't do any of it. God, you have just asked me to be your disciple. You've told me to radically follow you in a way that I don't understand. And I don't know how to do it. And he says, I know. Here is my Holy Spirit. Now you can do it. And the way that I get that is a radical transformation by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because I cannot do anything on my own. I cannot be free of my sins. I can't be free of my worry, free of my greed, free of my judgment, unless something gets a hold of my heart and changes that heart. And the only way that happens is by submitting our lives to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we thank you uh, again. Every week we praise you, we glorify you, Lord. Um, God, it is not easy to walk a life in discipleship. It's not easy to follow you because, Lord, we are the complete opposite of what you're calling us to be. And, Lord, it is only when you have entered within our hearts has changed our soul, Lord, that we are able to live for you. And Lord, I, I pray that as we think about where we stand, that we would humble ourselves, we would acknowledge our standing before you and before others. And Lord, that we would approach people in a way that seeks to honor and respect them. Lord, we don't want to see anyone lost and neither do you. So, Lord, give us a heart, give us wisdom, give us the motivation to not condemn, Father, but to reconcile people back to you the way that you did on the cross for us. Amen.